stories of some of the world's greatest women unfold here. I am Annette Comer, your host, and each week, the untold secrets of success, strength, and boldness of today's powerful women are revealed. Today's woman studied communication and business in college. She was smart and savvy and knew she was meant to lead. Her leadership style started to take shape when she went to live in Japan for a period of time. Her exposure to another culture sharpened all aspects of her, including her sense of business politics. However, the road to success wasn't always easy. A job was lost, and she had premature twins. But she was adaptable and always knew she could learn whatever she needed to fill the next role of leadership. And as her abilities developed, so did opportunities. Today, she is recognized as an accomplished technology executive who is leading a company to greatness as its CEO. It is my pleasure to introduce you to Julianne Larimer. Hi, Julianne. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, Annette. It's great to be here with you. Thank you for having me. We're going to have so much fun. And we have a limited time, and I've got so much I want to mine out of you. So let's go ahead and dig in. Julian, you have never been afraid to take on new roles, even though you might not have the qualifications needed. You describe this as being fearless. Have you always been this way? And what approach have you used to obtain roles others might disqualify themselves for? It's a great question. Have I always been fearless? And I think the the easy answer to that is, no, I haven't. I've been blessed with uh, parents that Uh, created opportunities and were good role models in terms of demonstrating that in the way that they worked and lived. As I think about that word in my career, it defines me and I think has been an opportunity where I've been selected for roles where um, I had a demonstrated track record and someone said, you know, she wasn't afraid to come in and make the right changes on behalf of an organization. And even though she hasn't done this role, I like her approach. I like the way she thinks. And I trust that she will treat this new opportunity with integrity and not be afraid to make whatever changes need to happen in order for us to move the business forward or uh, support the strategy or, you know, drive whatever's behind the business value. Interesting. So, you know, so many, I'm going to dig into this just a little bit deeper because so many people, especially women, would almost self-select themselves out. Yep. And I've seen this happen. And, yep. and you know, we've seen a lot of data and studies on this where if, if there's qualifications, if a man has 80% of them, they're in. If yes. a woman has 80% of them, she's already taken herself out of the game. That's right. What would you say to these women? I if would say, <laughs> yeah, no, I, and maybe it's because I've spent a lot of time in my career in sales roles is let the customer say no. It's such a great, you know, push yourself, take that risk. And what I found is I remember early in my career, I really wanted this role and that, and I, I probably wasn't qualified for it, but I raised my hand and I didn't get it. But guess what happened? you know, eight months later, when another role came up, because I had raised my hand and was rejected, then I was, you know, pulled in for that role. And so there's no harm in jumping. There just isn't. I think my experience is the downside 
in your mind is always bigger than the upside. But when you actually get into that situation and say, I'm just going to say a quick prayer, hold my breath and jump, it always ends up being better has been my experience. And even if, if in that one particular situation, it doesn't end up better somewhere down the line in that, like that example I just gave you is better. So don't talk yourself out of it. And the advice I'd give to other women is make sure you find people in your life that can, you know, give you that whisper to say, challenge your thinking when you, when you censor yourself out of an opportunity, have someone that, you know, will challenge you and say, wait, why are you not going for that? Wait, why are you not applying for that? Why are you not asking for that? And I think having people in your life around you that can help play that role also will give you the courage to move forward and be fearless. I love that. I think it's tremendous perspective. So as a leader, having tough conversations is certainly part of the job. And you told me you can have these conversations yet still be compassionate. So my question to you is, how have you been able to have compassion and toughness coexist successfully? Yes, I like to say, and I know people that work with me and for me and that I've worked for, we use this phrase, feedback is a gift. And if you approach your conversations from that place of of feedback is a gift, um, it works on several levels. Now, first of all, as the gift giver, it needs to be thoughtful and it needs to be tailored for the recipient. And that's always a reminder. You know, I have this verse from the Bible that's here on my desk. And whenever I go into a hard conversation, I read it and it says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And so if you think about feedback as a gift, um, how you tailor that message requires some investment in time. And then on the other side, as the recipient, if you can frame feedback as a gift, it gives you the opportunity and our human nature is always to want to, especially when you're getting hard feedback, you know, Julianne, you need to improve this or you didn't do well on that. I think the human nature is to come back and want to say yes, but, or let me explain. When you think of feedback as a gift, it's you, you want to be a gracious recipient of that gift. And so how can you listen with your heart and your mind? And how can you, you know, like they say, I I live by this, you know, seek first to understand and then to be understood. And if you view feedback as a gift, then you will find those nuggets in there And I view sometimes the hardest conversations I need to give, they have to be thoughtful. They have to be well-prepared. And in many cases, you'll have a stomach ache and you'll have it the night before and you'll have it the week before and you'll have it the minute before, but you have to be willing to do that. And what I found is if you come from a place of compassion, yet you're factual, people ultimately, you know, sort of at the bottom of their heart or in the back of their mind, they know what that they already know. And sometimes it's just your job to help them see that. And the more you can do that in a gracious way, the more that feedback is a gift. It is a tough conversation, but it has a good outcome because the what happens if you aren't willing to have that tough conversation is you haven't given that person the opportunity 
to receive that feedback and do something with it. Which is really cheating them out of something that they deserve and because of fear on your side. Oh, that's exactly right. And so what you can't be a good boss if you're not willing to have a hard conversation. And I think sometimes that people step into management and go, I like the part where I get to give the raises and the awards and, and then I maybe fire someone. No, like being a leader is about being able to have those tough conversations, you know, when there's a coaching moment and, and having the courage and the trust in the people that you work with that they will be a recipient of it, but you have to prepare and you have to work on coming from a place of grace. You know, and I've also found in my own experience that when I have those tough conversations, if I try to keep in my mind, I want to come from a place of love that uh, I'm not gushing on them all over them, but when they, when they react perhaps uh, negatively to the tough conversation because they get defensive, their feelings get hurt or whatever, I'm a little more patient in riding with that. Absolutely. And that's, that's exactly right. You have to remind yourself that it's really the tough conversation is, isn't about you. It's about them. Right. That's exactly what I agree with you a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. So often women struggle to gain respect in a male dominated workspace, but this has never been an issue for you. So what is your secret (laughs) to earning others respect, especially men? Yeah, so it's a great question. You know, I feel very fortunate that I grew up with two brothers. And so, you know, just always been around men. They weren't at the time, they're boys, but you know, that environment, I'm not uncomfortable. And being in a B2B technology space that I've chosen as a career, I found myself a lot of times there's not as many women. So the gaining respect, I really think about a couple of different things. One is you need to be prepared. You need to demonstrate that you're respectful of other people's time. You need to invest in relationships. And it's not about the transaction. It's about the relationship. And then the other piece that I think about uh, in gaining respect is communicating. So I think you earn a lot of respect when you can admit that you're wrong, when you can say that you're sorry, and when you can have those tough conversations. And uh, the other piece that I've worked really hard on is making sure that, you know, my motives are very clear. And when you're motivated to do what's right for the business uh, or the team or the person, I think those are all ways that you can garner respect and trust from your colleagues. So it has to start with how you operate in your own space, doesn't it? That's right. Internal work has to be done, doesn't it? That's right. You can't be unprepared and expect to be respected. You need to be a good teammate. That's another area that I didn't talk about, but I think is important. You know, I always like to say, I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. I I want, you know, you want to celebrate the talents of other people. And I think part of that is being comfortable with yourself and, and being able to recognize and give the respect to your colleagues. Yeah, I agree with that 100% for sure. That's been my experience as well. So, Julianne, even though you are a powerful woman with incredible responsibility, the voice of self-doubt can still pop into your head. So how do you not let voices of doubt impact your success path? (laughs) This has taken me a really long time to figure out. Um, 
And it's still there. Even today, there are times when I walk into meetings or situations and I think, oh boy, you know, what did I shouldn't be here? Everybody else is more, you know, choose the adjective. And what's really helped me personally overcome that doubt is a reminder of the purpose. And so, you know, I think about that math equation and saying that that sense of purpose in what I'm doing and why I'm doing it is always the most important. And I've been selected for roles like we talked about earlier. I've been chosen for roles that have required a lot of work uh, because the group that I walked into wasn't exactly where the business needed it to be. And I, and so even though I may say, oh, how did I get into this job? I'm not that smart. I'm like, no, no, someone had the confidence that I could do this. And we have a very important job that needs to get done. And I have people that are counting on me to get that done. And I would say, especially in this past year, as you know, a first-time CEO, a global pandemic, there was, there was no playbook that we had written inside of our organization. We were having to go through a lot of decision-making that was brand new for me. And not just because of my role, but because of the situation that we're in. And all I could think of is there's 500 people that wake up every day and are counting on me to do the right thing for the business. They're counting on me to build the right team. They're counting on me to have the right relationships. And that sense of purpose, I think, is what allows me to push through that doubt or fear that's like, I don't think I can do this. And it's like, well, you don't have a choice because you have people that are counting on you. And more than that, you believe in what it is we're trying to get done. So just focus on that. And then at the end of whatever that is, I'll say, wow, I did that. (laughs) And if you focus on the purpose, not the fear, that to me has been sort of my kryptonite. Yeah. And I think that's a tremendous wisdom. And, and I think we really get ourselves in trouble with the self-doubt when we internalize and focus completely on us. Because I found the same thing, Julianne. When I, when I have doubt, if I say, okay, you're, you're all into you, get out of you and get into others. Oh. And when I get into others, then I, there's no room for the doubt because I have, a, I have a mission I'm on. That's, ex- that's such a great way to say it, Annette. That's exactly right. We have a mission and a purpose, and we were selected by you know, smart people for this role and like, by golly, go get it done. You can do own it. it. Own it. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And hopefully you've built the respect through some of those other techniques we talked about earlier. So if it goes a little bit sideways, you know, you're still able to recover. Right. You're still on your feet. You're still on your feet. That's right. So you turn you s- that fear, that energy into positive energy, not absolutely. a hold you back energy, but a push you forward energy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, you see yourself as kind funny, and downright nice, <laughs> which I think is wonderful. And I'll have to agree with those, that the whole uh, assessment of yourself. So, but does this ever get mistaken by others as you being weak or a pushover? It's an interesting question. What I found is, and I believe this, when you look at the core values of our company, I believe that there is a place for kindness and accountability, and they can coexist inside of a person inside of an organization. You know, one of the things that has been a challenge for me as a leader is my style is very authentic. I'm approachable. I like to laugh. I like to have fun. And so 
I think sometimes when people think of leaders that hold their team accountable, it may be more of a militaristic or that accountability comes through um, challenging them in a meeting or calling them out. And I believe you can be authentic, you can be kind, and yet you can still hold people accountable. But you can do that, like you said, you if you are coming from a place of love or a place of caring, uh, that may look different than what they're used to. So it may catch them initially off guard. But ultimately, I think it creates a, a better working relationship than accountability through, you know, top down or more traditional type of manager employee mechanisms, if you will. Right. And I suspect your body language and some of the ways you hold people accountable, that it comes very clearly that you are kind and funny and nice, but you're not a fluff puff. <laughs> yep. You'll have to ask them on a different interview, but yes. Well, you're I'm still standing. So evidently you're still okay. <laughs> but I would tell you that, I, you know, yes, I've had feedback from people that I've coached, like, thank you. That was, that was helpful. And yes, you are. I appreciate they're holding me accountable, but more than that, I appreciate the way in which you're holding me accountable. Yeah. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Yeah. And that whole attitude has been part of your success for sure. So you believe the more responsibility a woman takes on, the more she has to let go of control, which is kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? So explain how this shows up in your life and how you allow yourself to be okay with things not being a certain way. Yeah, it's a funny topic. And I feel like this is a topic that women talk about a lot more than men. And part of that may be just how we're wired or the way that responsibilities fall traditionally. And I believe so much of my success is due to the support structure that I have around me. And when our children were growing up, my husband and I had our parents nearby to help out. I know other people, it may not be your parents, it may be your brothers and sisters or your neighbors or you know people from your church. And so I think finding that support network Our family was in a situation where we had the luxury of being able to decide that we needed a stay-at-home parent. And I think that's been extremely helpful. And then just recognizing that there's places where I heard a woman speak early on in my career, and she was a CEO of of a pharma company. And she said, like, please remember, no matter what, it's not worth your time to rearrange the dishwasher. And, And that metaphor has stuck with me over many, many years now. And I'll catch myself where I'll say, oh, am I rearranging the dishwasher? (laughs) And I'm not rearranging the dishwasher, but I'm, her point was like, just there's certain things that aren't worth the time. And when you only have so much time in the day, making sure that you catch yourself that you're really spending it on, you know, I'd rather go help one of my kids with their homework, or I'd rather go you know, take a walk with the dog and my husband or my daughter. And yeah, that pile of laundry, we'll get to it. But like, that's not, you know, our house is about connections and spending time together and baking. And so, yes, our kitchen is probably, if you just showed up, it would be messy, but, but we are creating memories. And so it's prioritizing those activities that are going to create the most meaning for everyone and, and being okay, which is very hard to do with like, ah, the kitchen's a mess, but you know what? I got outside, my daughter and I took a walk and she told me all the things that are going on in college. 
And that's worth way more than a clean kitchen. And so it's finding that. Finding the good in it. And being okay with it. Like being okay. <laughs> kitchen's messy, but I, you know, <laughs> have to spend time with my daughter. And in a perfect world, I'd have both, but you know, making that choice is important and being okay with that choice. Cause I think there's a lot of working mom guilt. And I talk to lots of moms about, you know, just that there's an archetype of what we should be. <laughs> and that stems from a lot of, you know, films and movies that were, it's just, it's messy and it's okay to be messy. And I've taken me a while to figure that out, but now I embrace it and I love it. <laughs> and there's so much freedom in that, isn't there? There's a lot of freedom in that. You breathe. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> And, you know, give yourself forgiveness or give yourself whatever it is that says, this is okay. That pile of laundry is fine. That messy kitchen, it'll get, I'll get to it. <laughs> or yeah, and that's will. something that women that are mothers really have to work on. They really do. Because you're right, that guilt really creeps in. Yeah, that's right. And I, this pandemic, I think, has really been especially hard on women. I see that in the women that I work with and just the additional amount of responsibility. Everyone's working from home. Your kids are learning from home. You may have older parents that you need to take care of. And I just see the pressure. And I, I feel like I, it's such an obligation on my part to say, what can I do to help? Or how can we reprioritize? Right. You know, because I, I see that pressure today more than I've ever seen it in my career. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. So uh, you told me something in an earlier conversation that I want to circle back to. We haven't talked about it today, but in a past experience you had with the ancient art of Tai Chi shaped how you look at leadership. So how does this ancient art show up today in the way you lead as a CEO? Yeah. So as I, as you mentioned in the introduction, my very first job out of college, I had the opportunity to work for a Japanese company and actually live in Japan. And one of the sports or I took up or hobbies when I was over there was Tai Chi. And the thinking behind Tai Chi is how do you harness the energy? And it's a form of martial art. And that's not how we were using it, we were using it more as a form of meditation and relaxation and harnessing that energy. And if you think about a combat, when you are up against someone, you've got two pieces of energy that are pushing against each other. And the idea of Tai Chi is is grabbing the energy from your opponent and using their energy to make your energy more powerful. Now, that's a combative example what I think about that is um, in two ways. In the positive way is how can you grab onto the energy of a, a, a partner or a customer or a colleague and use that energy to create more energy? And I, I love that idea and this idea of creating more from you know two people, their energy. And then at the same time, when you have a conflict at work, which inevitably we do, and as leaders, we may be in the midst of that ourselves, or we may be overseeing or helping to negotiate a conflict. And the idea is, how can I work with the other side to create that energy and there understand what's going on so that we're creating the best outcome? That idea of working together and, and using the energy for a good outcome has been a way of thinking that's informed the way that I approach confrontation. I don't want to be this. I want to grab the energy and see if we can solve together and have a better outcome than a winner and a loser. And that sounds so much healthier than so many of the ways that leaders approach 
situations for sure. So, Julianne, is there anything about your journey to greatness that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with other women? So, Annette, one of the things we haven't talked about, and I was in a session with one of your other outstanding women, Patricia Fripp, and she was asking everyone in the room to think about what their superpower is. And I think a lot of people want to focus on, you know, I can, I'm really smart, I'm agile. And as I reflected on that question, you know, my superpower is I'm not afraid to ask for help. And so I, I would leave your listeners with that idea because I think so many people view asking for help as a form of weakness. And in reality, as you think about your career and my career, there's nothing better than helping someone. And I think it's a sign of strength, actually, in being able to acknowledge that you may not have everything you need, or people like to help people. And so it gives your colleagues the opportunity to feel like they're helping. If you don't know what you're doing, and you don't ask for help, people will eventually figure that out. And so my stance has always been, I'm not afraid to ask for help. I think it shows that I'm objective. I think it shows that I understand where I start and finish in terms of a particular project where I'm stuck. And what I've always found is I've never regretted asking for help. And so I would just encourage your listeners to think about there's power in asking for help, as counterintuitive as that may sound. And and it it doesn't necessarily show you're weak because a lot of people, like you say, feel like they chose that they're weak. That's right. Julianne, thank you so much for being so generous with all your wisdom. Uh, You are an incredible leader, and I'm just pleased to see as you continue to unfold in this this role that you're in. It'll be magnificent, I have no doubt. It's been so great to spend time with you, Annette. It's a really nice way to spend an afternoon. So thank you. And Julianne is another great example of how women are challenging the norm, making things happen, and demanding their own greatness. So join me next time on the World's Greatest Women Show as another powerful woman story unfolds. 